0: All right, welcome everyone back to another edition of New Books in Education. This is your host Ryan Allen, and today I'm excited to bring us a guest that we had on before with uh, with, with a book and, and a co-author, uh, but this time we we get her all to ourselves. And uh, I have Rebecca NATO, uh, senior research associate with the Columbia uh, with Community College Research Center at Teachers College, Columbia University. And today we're going to be talking about her book, Higher Education Rulemaking. The Politics of Creating Regulatory Policy, and this is from John Hopkins University Press, and it was just published in September. So, Rebecca, welcome back to the New Books Network.
1: Thank you so much for having me back.
0: And if we could, just to remind our listeners and, and everyone out there, uh, give us a little bit about yourself. How did you get into uh, education as a subject? What's kind of your academic background?
1: Okay, so um, as you mentioned, I'm currently Senior Research Associate at the Community College Research Center. Um, I actually began my career as an attorney, um, practiced law for approximately five years and um, decided it was time for a career change uh, and was, was interested in getting into higher education administration. So uh, that brought me to the Teachers College um, Higher and Post-Secondary Education Program. Um, I went in thinking I would, I would get a master's degree, be done in a year or two, and then be working in administration somewhere. But what happened is I developed... Um, um, of strong interest in higher education policy, and that led me into their doctoral program. So um, long story short, uh, I wound up um, all these years later looking into um, higher education rulemaking as a policy process because it was something that was interesting to me, but I noticed it was not being written about or studied um, as much as it, it could have been. And um, and so um, working working in higher education policy and focusing my research there um, I ended up uh, working on um, performance funding research with Kevin Doherty, and that's how I started at uh, Community College Research Center.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then that—that that was. We'll, we'll post a link to that uh, interview that we had as well on, on performance funding. Uh, so, if if we if we could get maybe a little bit into the into this book, uh, you talk about I think in the book that this is something that everyone is sort of maybe thinks about or talks about politically, but then just the idea of how it works actually kind of flies uh, under the radar. And I think like, you you kind of seek to answer uh, a couple of questions like what happens after legislation affecting higher education is signed to law? Um, how are these specific uh, provisions implemented? And then and who actually determines uh, the details of these programs and particular laws that uh, have been authorized? Um, so can we kind of uh, get into the book a little bit and the, uh, just, just sort of the, uh, questions maybe that you sought to answer with this book and, uh, kind of set it, set the stage of, of, uh, of the subject.
1: Sure. Um, so for for this book, as I mentioned, um, rule, higher education rulemaking as a process, um, was not receiving a lot of attention in the, in the scholarly literature on higher education policy. Mm -hmm. Um, and what it is is it's it's basically a process for creating regulations. It occurs um, in the Department of Education, and um, rulemaking to create regulations actually occurs across um, different different government agencies. There's a there's a law called the Administrative Procedure Act, which governs how how rulemaking um, takes place, and other agencies besides the Department of Education do engage in in rulemaking as well. Um, but what I think is uh, somewhat unique to higher education rulemaking is that. There's a provision in the Higher Education Act that's been there for some years that says that a process known as negotiated rulemaking um, must take place um, uh, when permitted by law, uh, when uh, regulations to implement Title IV federal financial aid programs are being created. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, the Title IV federal financial aid programs are very important to a lot of students who, who would not be able to attend college without federal financial aid. It's um, important to a lot of institutions um, that uh, receive financial aid through their students, um, and particularly for-profit institutions. um, uh, Federal financial aid makes up a large uh, portion of their revenue. So this becomes a very um, important process. And what negotiated rulemaking is, is it's a process that brings together um, the stakeholders who are likely to be affected by the final rule into the rule drafting process, uh, they sit down with the Department of Education over a period of days, um, and, and usually those days are spread out over, uh, over multiple months, so they might meet, for example, three days in March, three days in April, three days in May. They, they come together, they sit around the table, and they basically hammer out the language for the proposed rule. Um, now, if, if the negotiating committee comes to consensus, and that is defined as all of the parties agree on the proposed language, then that is the language that goes into the proposed rule. But if there's even one party that is dissenting that's not agreeing to consensus on the language, then the Department of Education staff gets to write the rule uh, basically by themselves. Um, Now, that's not to say that the negotiations won't have an impact on that. In fact, my research shows that um, that the negotiations do have an impact, even when the department's not required to to use that language. You could see the influence of, of, of the parties that are sitting at the table there in what the department comes up with. But it's, it's also a process that gives the department an awful lot of power because the department has a negotiator sitting around the table as well. So even if it's the department's negotiator that doesn't agree to the language, if you have a scenario where everyone else sitting around the table agrees, but the Department of Education's negotiator does not, then that gives the department um, the power to write the proposed rule on its own. Um, And because other agencies do negotiated rulemaking as well, but because the Higher Education Act requires it of of the Title IV regulations, and because Title IV is so important in higher education policy, um, I I thought this would be an interesting uh, process to study because it happens so frequently and it's um, so closely watched by interest groups uh, in the higher education policy arena.
0: Sure, sure. So if we could then, if I could turn our attention to uh, the the focus of the uh, of the data, I guess, the data sources that you use. You you talked to uh, over fifty or fifty five different policymakers and higher education actors, and then you also looked at uh, thirty two instances of uh, rulemaking. So, you, can you kind of talk about uh, the makeup of that and and sort of what what uh, your your data look like?
1: Sure. So, um, you're, you're correct. I did t- speak to fifty five individuals, um, some of whom are are. Uh, policy actors, policymakers, um, people who work in the Department of Education, people who uh, work uh, for Congress, congressional staff, but also um, higher education actors, people who work at institutions, people who work at associations uh, that represent higher education institutions. And, and the associations are often uh, referred to as One DuPont Circle because a lot of mm-hmm. them are located at One DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C. Um, and also some observers of, of rulemaking, such as journalists and Um, And even a financial analyst who, who, um, uh, when the gainful employment rules were being developed, uh, which affected mostly for-profit institutions, the financial analyst took a a keen interest in what was going on. So um, so that was the makeup of of my interview sample. And as you mentioned, I also um, purposefully selected um, 32 individual rules to examine. And I chose them um, based basically on the diversity of their subject matter so I could get a wide range of different um, subject matters. Um, the time frame in which they were created. I looked back um, on on higher education, going back to the 90s. Higher education rulemaking, going back to the early 90s, and I wanted to get um, different sample, the a, a sample that had rules from all different time periods throughout uh, that time frame, so I could see how things changed over time. And also, um, I was looking for a variety of of, of um, both high prominence rules and lower prominence rules to see what sort of differences there were. Uh, whether a rule is controversial and and, and um, high profile and, and getting a lot of media attention, how does that affect um, sort of what happens in the rulemaking process? As opposed to when a rule is really just kind of minor and more technical. So I wanted to get um, I want I was aiming for diversity along those um, those three characteristics in my um, in my rule sample, my focal rule sample.
0: Sure, sure. And I think uh, you specifically uh, talk about. Two gainful employment rules and accreditation and student outcomes.
1: That's right. Um, I focused um, in the book. I focused on on those two rules because I felt like they were exemplary of a lot of the a lot of the themes I saw coming out of my research. Um, the the gainful employment rules. Um, the first one was um, began to be developed. I think in two thousand nine, two thousand ten, and when it was finally issued, it was already two thousand eleven. The second one was issued in, in two thousand fourteen, and basically what they do. Um, is they try to define a term um, that that appears in the Higher Education Act, um, the term being gainful employment, basically requiring that uh, career focused higher education programs, such as such as those that you'll see at a lot of for profit institutions, that they um, can receive uh, federal four fund federal I'm sorry Title IV federal financial aid funds if, among other things, they provide training in. Um, a recognized field that uh, that allows um, students to become gainfully employed. Mm-hmm. So when the Obama administration uh, first came in, um, there was an attempt to to enact this um, gainful employment rule that would basically define what, what that meant. And there was a whole lot of requirements that were going to be imposed on institutions that, uh, that provide career education programs and that are subject to that gainful employment requirement. These are basically accountability measures, um, certain disclosures that they would have to make, uh, certain debt to income uh ratio that their alumni would have to would have to meet um and and the reason behind that is because um that was just following a, a big recession in the economy and uh there were a, a large number of students who had attended for profit institutions that weren't weren't paying back their student their federal student loans so um so this was an attempt to sort of um uh, impose some accountability uh for that. Sure. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, the, no the accreditation and student outcomes rule occurred during the Bush administration, and that one actually did not go into the final rule stage. That one was coming out of the Spellings Commission, which um, basically was a, um, a commission <coughs> excuse me, that uh, former Secretary of Education Margaret Spellings had created to study higher education and to make recommendations for um, higher education uh, policies to improve um, um, higher education in the United States and one of the things they wanted to do was to tie um, was to tie student outcomes to um, accreditation so that there would be some sort of an examination of, of how students are doing some sort of value added um, analysis of, of how much students are learning and tie that somehow to accreditation if you recall um, there was the No Child Left Behind Act which was mm-hmm. an accountability act in um, the K through12 sector right. and <laughs> excuse me and um, and so this was this was sort of a, a counterpart. This was going to be a counterpart to that for for higher education. What ended up happening was there was a there was a huge backlash after that rulemaking began, um, and it was a, the backlash was bipartisan. You saw Republicans um, as well as Democrats right. speaking out about how this would be um, if they were to create this rule would be overstepping uh, the department's authority. Uh, the institutions certainly were not uh, were not excited about the prospect of this happening, and the rulemaking never went forward. So. Um, I, I think if you examine those different rules together, the, the two gainful employment rules and sort of the trajectory that those took, as well as this uh, accreditation and student outcomes rule, they really tell the story of, of what happens in the higher education rulemaking process pretty nicely.
0: Mm, very nice, very nice. We keep uh, moving moving further, I think, uh, uh, kind of diving further into that. With the idea, you sort of uh, do a good job, I think, of melding uh, theory with this, with what's actually sort of happening. Um, mm-hmm. So if you can maybe kind of talk about how in the federal federal bureaucracy, yeah, that's kind of hard to say, federal bureaucracy, uh, if you could, how that sort of matches up with theory. I think you look into the policy process with, with Kingdon and then uh, actually coalition theory. So can you kind of talk about uh, how that's working?
1: Yeah. So, um, so this research, and I don't think I've mentioned this yet, but this research is basically based on my dissertation, my doctoral dissertation. Um, and when I was Writing my proposal, I was um, coming up with this conceptual framework, and so I borrowed some um, policy theories, Kingdon's um, basically his multiple streams, mm-hmm. uh, revised garbage can model of, of, of the agenda setting process, right. and also the advocacy coalition framework, which is a very comprehensive process that looks at different aspects of, of uh, policymaking, including the policy actors and what coalitions they form, and then how different surrounding contexts influence policymaking and what policies are created. And also, importantly, how the the role that beliefs play, that policy actors' beliefs about things, uh, for example, the the subject matters of policies, what role they play in sort of coalition formation and the strategies that they use to to influence policymaking, and then how those beliefs are, are often reflected in final policies. So... Um, so from based on those theories, I created this conceptual framework that wanted to look at the entirety of the higher education rulemaking process because, as i said it 's not something that had been studied that comprehensively before um, so so using those theories, my research questions focus on who are the actors, the policy actors, the higher education actors who are involved in the process, who are they, um, how much meaningful influence do they have over over rulemaking outcomes. Mm-hmm. Secondly, what strategies did they put in place in order to, to influence rulemaking? Um, and then third, what do those surrounding contexts, what kind of influence do they have? For example, political context, economic context, um, other contexts, such as whether a high-profile event occurs. Um, Kingdon talks about policy windows being these sort of high-profile occurrences that allow, um, allow certain policies to, to sort of come through at certain um, opportune times. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of the melding of the different streams of policy problems um, um, and policy solutions and and, um, and policy context, and then um, and then uh, finally, um, what role do the beliefs play? What role do policy actors' beliefs play um, in this process? It's interesting. There are beliefs about the substantive policy areas being uh, regulated, of course. But there's also beliefs about regulation itself. How much should the Department of Education be regulating? Is regulation a good thing? So I found that beliefs about both of those aspects, uh, beliefs about regulation and also beliefs about the underlying subject matters of rules, uh, were influencing the process and were being reflected in the final
0: rules. Mm -hmm. Right. I think one of the things that I I thought was interesting is you said that, uh, or maybe someone reported uh, to you, that people who were against sort of these regulations were often the most involved in, in regulations because they were there sort of to make sure that they're protecting uh, their own self-interest.
1: That's right. Um, I think um, it, it might be tempting to think that people who, who are have anti-regulation beliefs um, might stay away from the process just for ideological reasons. But, in fact, a lot of the times the people who, who wanted to restrict regulations were more involved because they wanted to be that check on the, on the Department of Education to make sure – that they weren't over, that the department was not overstepping its authority.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and usually within the uh, advocacy coalition theory and the framework, we're seeing these uh, coalitions sort of build up and, and go away after like, you know, maybe like a 10 year period. Right. Where, where did you identify any, any shocks to, that really changed up uh, these coalitions or, or
1: what, what
0: did, how, did, did they change or why, why, why or why not?
1: Well, in this, in this instance, um, the, the, Coalitions definitely formed, but they were often formed based on shared interests as opposed to shared beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, um, oftentimes, uh, a lot of the shared beliefs and shared interests would, would coincide with each other. But uh, but sometimes it was communicated to me that there were people from very different um, ideological perspective, different sides of the aisle, who joined together to form coalitions. Um, because they, they wanted a common goal, even if the, the beliefs sort of underlying the reasons for why they wanted that common goal were different. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the um, accreditation rulemaking that I just spoke about is, is one example of that because you did have people um, from from both major political parties sort of joining together to, um, to stop that regulation. On the Republican side, it was more um, of that anti-regulation um, ideology. Uh, the, the Department of Education should not be regulating in this area. But there was also the Um, The beliefs on on the parts of the institutions, for example, that, well, um, they're not opposed to um, regulation per se, but but in this case, they were opposed to it because um, it would intrude upon institutional autonomy. So I saw a lot of coalitions that would form for um, maybe just for one rulemaking. Mm-hmm. Um, so it would, certainly wouldn't last 10 years. It might last just until the, you know, the next time they did mm-hmm. a rulemaking, which could be several months or maybe a year later. Mm-hmm. And then they would be on, you know, on different, in different coalitions again.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. And I know uh, another important aspect of this is sort of which party is in control of the yes. government at the time. So uh, how, how much of a factor did you find or could you kind of talk about how much of a factor that was?
1: Yeah, well, well, interestingly, I did find um, some interesting things uh, to come out of, of that particular context. Um, first and foremost, I think the who, whoever the president is and, and that president's political party is going to have an influence on um, basically the content of, of regulations and what they're going to look like. Um, there was one um, particular subject of regulation that I traced basically from the early 90s um, uh, through uh the early years of the Obama administration, and that was an incentive compensation regulation uh there was some language in the Higher Education Act in nineteen ninety two that basically forbade um incentive compensations or bonuses to be paid to admissions and financial aid personnel uh based on um, basically the number of students that they enroll uh, i i I, uh, I believe the Congress saw that as a conflict of interest and 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 forbade that and then In 1994, uh, during the Clinton administration, the Department of Education issued a rule basically um, mirroring that language from the statute and putting it into regulation form. Um, Fast forward to 2002 during the George W. Bush administration, and what the Department of Education did was it elucidated a number of so-called safe harbors Mm -hmm. uh, that would basically allow certain types of incentive compensation to be paid under certain circumstances without violating that incentive compensation rule from the higher education act. Um, I think there were 12 safe harbors. Some of them included certain types of um, internet recruitment, um, um, token gifts to students, um, or alum alumni under certain circumstances, um, um, incentives, incentive payments based on student completion and a few, a few other areas. Then, um, move into the early years of the Obama administration and there was a, a, a rollback of those safe harbors. Um, and that of course um, uh, resulted in some controversy because a lot of the a lot of the institutions that were um that were using incentive uh, those types of incentive payments under the safe harbors were for-profit institutions. So um, an association representing the for-profits actually sued the um Department of Education and the Obama administration uh, to get those those rules rolled back. Um, and it's, it was in litigation for a while and um, um, it, it wasn't a complete victory for either side. I think the um, the, the judge had said something about um, having to provide um, um, you know a solid reasoning for why this why these um these prohibitions were were in the regulations and then um, recently the Department of Education announced that. Although the regulations are still in the books, they're not going to be enforcing them, um, certain ones as vigorously as they as they would have otherwise. So, um, so that's how that one played out. But you can see how uh, how that regulation evolved from first in a, a Democratic administration and then into a Republican administration, and then once again into a, um, a Democratic administration. How it went back and forth of being um, more restrictive of instead of compensations during the Democratic administrations and more. Um, um, more allowing of certain types of incentive compensations during the Republican administration. Mm.
0: Yeah. That's one thing that I noticed is, that you talked about. I think it was actually towards the beginning, but just to, to bring it back is the idea that they have these sort of uh, programs that are just not funded at all. Um, and, and how, how that kind of it maybe seems like it's there, but it, it, because there's no money, it's not actually operating.
1: Right. Yes, well, the, under the um, Higher Education Act, which is a, which is an authorizing statute, and it has a number of different provisions and titles and many many programs that it authorizes. But these programs are funded through a separate appropriations process. So sometimes there will be a program that is technically on the books; you can look it up, but it's um, but it isn't currently receiving funds, and therefore um, it won't currently be active.
0: Right. Right. Okay. Uh, well, I, uh, keep keep on uh, moving along through the book, and and uh, you do a section on. Uh, the use of technology. And I think even uh, somebody you cite is talking about uh, dubbing it uh, electronic rulemaking or e-rulemaking. So mm-hmm. how much of a factor did that have in uh, this process? And, and are we seeing uh, coalitions maybe or, or different actors able to, to join together through this? Or can, can you just kind of talk about that? Through the process? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting. Over the past, I say, 10 years or so, um, Maybe, maybe even more than that. There's been um, a move to to make some of the some parts of the rulemaking process um, electronic. Um, regulations.gov launched um, a while back. I believe the Department of Education started using it for um, Office of Postsecondary Education rules around 2007 uh, was the date that I was told. So, um, little little less than 10 years ago. But um, but basically, what what Regulations.gov does is it allows interested parties to comment on proposed regulations online. Mm. Um, Now, there's a phase of the rulemaking process after a proposed rule goes into the Federal Register. There will be a certain period of time during which anybody, members of the public interest groups um, who have not participated in a a successful negotiated rulemaking, that's one exception. But basically anybody else, including members of Congress, can submit a comment on the rule, commenting on it, how it should be changed, parts that they like, parts that they don't like, um, to the Department of Education. Now, in the past, before that whole process was uh, was made electronic, the old fashioned way of doing this was you would just you know write up a letter and 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 put it in the mail to the department. Um, and and even going back before that, before the Federal Register was available online, you had to go to the library, um, find the Federal Register, and and look at the at the rule there. Um, so so as you can see, that that takes some effort. It means that somebody has to be able to have the time to do that, right. but also have the knowledge um, to know that these regulations are out there, to know where to find the Federal Register, to know how to how to locate a particular proposed rule in it, which can be difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, it really sort of left this this commenting, um, notice and comment process up to people who, who had resources or at least had a lot of knowledge about how the process uh, worked. What, what regulations.gov does is it puts all of this online. You can see the uh, proposed rule online. You can make a comment on it online. It makes it very easy. You can do this from your home. You could do it, um, you know, anytime during the day or, or night. And so it really opens up access to the process. Now, what's interesting that I found is, um, it based in, on, on talking to, to policy actors and higher education actors who are involved in this process, is there might be more comments coming in because it's now easier to make comments. But first of all, you still have to have enough knowledge to even know that this is going on. Um, it's, you know, it's not like some not- notice is necessarily going to show up in your, in your inbox, an um, in email telling you that this is happening unless you've signed up for a listserv, which also indicates that you have uh, some, some interest in this. Um, but, but the fact that they might be getting more comments almost makes, them less, this, makes this less of an effective um, mm. process. For, right. for influencing rulemaking, because you know, back when when the department was receiving fifty or sixty comments, they could read all of them carefully. Now it's not uncommon for them to get tens of thousands of comments. Um, each of the Gainful Employment rules um, alone, each of them received more than ninety thousand comments. Um, so that greatly reduces the amount of time that the Department of Education staff can spend looking at right looking right. at comments. So um, so the way it was described to me was, yes, it it. it Maybe has opened up access to certain people um, to make comments, but it, it has decreased the effectiveness of them. It's diluted the effectiveness of them.
0: Yeah, I mean that makes sense. Just if, if you're getting flooded with all these things online, that you're, are you actually going to uh, sift through literally everything? Or are you going to skim a couple of them and consider it, uh, you know, consider it done? Uh, you kind of briefly talk a little about social media and just the idea of sort of uh, putting out a call for action or, or something. Uh, Want to use quote? Uh, so, do, how much of a factor does that have, or are we still still in an infancy stage of trying to understand uh, where that comes into play?
1: Yeah. So, this was um, still in its infancy stage when I was when I was doing the research. Um, I do think that more could be done with social media. There's a project going on at um, Cornell University called Regulation Room, where they're they're making an effort to use social media with with certain agencies. Um, not the Department of Education, but other federal agencies to try and bring more um, public involvement into rulemaking. I know that there are some lawmakers who would like to see uh, greater effectiveness of, of, public, um, of public comments. So this could be one way to do that, one way to engage more of the public in social media. Um, having said that, I, I have seen um, notices come from the Department of Education's um, Twitter feed, for example. Um, there's a lot of information up on the Department's own website um, so you can, you can find a lot of information there about when negotiated rulemaking is taking place, and they post the handouts, um, the documents that they hand out from negotiated rulemaking on their website. They post verbatim transcripts from regional meetings that occur uh, before negotiated rulemaking to get ideas for, for, for topics they, they might want to negotiate um, so they are they are putting the, the information out there. I do think it could be used um, a little bit more creatively to bring in a, sort of a wider audience for for the rules and the and the rulemaking process.
0: Right, right. Yeah, and I, I think you know having a Buzzfeed listicle of uh, you know the, the top <laughs> regulations for
1: higher ed in two thousand and sixteen. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, making making it making it a little bit interesting. Right. On the other hand, and I don't um, I don't know that this is behind anyone's thinking, but um, but. It, it may be in the interests of, of the Department of Education not to have a You're ton right. of uh, a ton of people involved in it because then you know as we were talking about with the commenting um, it makes more um, more material material for them to go through so that, it, it, that would uh, take longer to, to get the regulations out and make the rulemaking process more complicated and might also in a sense um, dilute the effectiveness of it because you'd have so many more voices coming into the process right. now I don't know that that's what's um, what's behind their thinking, but it it is something um, you know, it is a factor to to think about. I see.
0: okay, well, uh, we're we're kind of coming up on on the end of the the interview, but I just uh, want to uh, ask a couple more questions if we can. Uh, you you kind of talk about the implications of of this study. Can you kind of get into that, um especially on the sort of the practice uh, side, I think
1: our listeners yeah. Are um so I think so my research can uh, can sort of shed light on this practice, which uh, which I think is, um, is important in and of itself. Um, as I keep saying, it's it's not something that's been studied a lot, it's not something that a lot of people, particularly in the general public, know about even though these regulations are very important for, for higher education and, and even for, for student aid, which affects so many people. Um, um, so just knowing more about the process and how it works I think is valuable information for members of the public, also for institutions and, and associations that represent them, other interest groups that have been involved in, in the process. And policymakers themselves, whether they're in Congress or, or in the department, um, can can look at my research and, and, and get an understanding as to as to what uh, what is happening and and what parties are are exerting meaningful influence in the process. Um, I think it's also useful for sort of predicting the future. Where do we go? Um, where do we go next as far as, as rulemaking? Um, and I can speak a little bit about that if yeah. you
0: like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think everyone is very curious about what's going to happen in the next. Forward, you know to eight years so yeah if you can if you can give us some uh, some insight that'd be great
1: right so um, we have a new administration coming in in January um, we're switching from a, a Democratic to a Republican administration which as I mentioned um, that can certainly change the content of rules I think in this case um, um, uh, as we saw with uh, the Obama administration sort of doing stricter regulations on the for-profit sector I think we might see uh, a lot a, a bit of that if not a lot of it uh, rolled back in the new administration, um, which um, does have ties to the business community, um, where you might expect um, less regulation of, of the for-profit sector and more sort of incentives to expand for-profit education. Um, I, also, I also think that um, typically one of, the other, one of the other patterns I noticed in my research was that um, when you have a Democrat in the White House and then uh, Democrats controlling Congress, I noticed that on average there were more higher education rules being issued under that type of um, um, control of government mm. than under any other form of control, go- control of government, whether it's Republican control or, or sort of uh, divided control. Right, right. And then when you have a Republican in the White House and Republican controlled Congress, that was when you saw the least um, on average number of, of higher education rulemakings coming out, mm. um, at least over the past 25 years. Right. Now – Even though we're moving into a period of of united control under Republicans, I don't think that we're going to see that pattern this time. Um, One of the reasons for that is, as I just mentioned, there might be a move to roll back some of the regulations on the for-profit sector that came in during the Obama administration. But also, the Higher Education Act is due to be uh, reauthorized, Mm -hmm. and um, it's it's actually overdue to be reauthorized. And I think now that we have united government um, under one party, It'll be much easier to get that legislation through and get it signed by the president. So, um, once a, a new reauthorization of such a large bill as the Higher Education Act comes through, you generally see um, a spike um, in in new rules that come out to implement uh, the programs under under that uh, under that new authorizing statute. So, for those reasons, I do think we are going to see some some higher education rulemaking activity during the next uh, few years and it will be very interesting to watch.
0: Mm, fantastic. Well, that's great. I think uh, all of our listeners and, and everybody really is is very curious of what's going to be, what's in store for us. And so that's great. It's a nice prediction. So I guess, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of to the end of the interview. It's been, it's really been nice talking to you, but uh, you know, with, with the book uh, there's always something next. So what are you, what are you working on now? What's, what's your next project?
1: Well, um, I'm in the, process of working on a, um, I'm part of a team that is examining uh, developmental education. So um, basically students who enter college and um, their, their skills are not up to college level in some area, whether it's in English or in mathematics, um, a, lot of, a lot of times they will go into developmental education to, to get um, the skills that they need to move into college level coursework. I'm part of a, a large team at the Community College Research Center that's uh, investigating um, what those programs look like. Um, my, my aspect of it is, is descriptive. And so we're looking at things like, um, what do the assessment practices look like? What do the instructional practices look like in developmental education? Um, and a number of other similar descriptive research questions, um, surrounding that.
0: Mm. Okay. Well, we'll definitely look forward to that research coming out. That's actually very important. So, so fantastic stuff. Thank um, you. And, uh, I just want to tell all my listeners, uh, Please go check out Higher Education Rulemaking, The Politics of Creating Regulatory Policy. And I want to thank uh, Rebecca Nato and her great work and great interview. And to everyone out there, uh, I hope you learned.